Good morning. It's good to be with you again. It's uh, always a pleasure to uh, be in God's house with Parker Ford Church and uh, bring the word. So uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You know, as a local church, we walk through a lot of different situations and a lot of different experiences to, together um, from a number of different vantage points, and we all come at those vantage points and at those perspectives from somewhere. We all come from a history. We all have a story. We all have a timeline. We all have situations in our lives that we bring with us, um, places that we've come, places that we hope to go. And all of those things inform on some level a corporate experience that we have with Christ then as well. And uh, as we think about what it means for us to be both individually engaged in our lives with God and also what it means to be corporately engaged together as a local church and what it means to be corporately engaged together as a regional church, as a global church, um, there are a few principles that stay in line throughout all of those things. And I want to talk about one of those principles today. Here's a key truth statement for you. Ready? If you're taking notes, you should write this one down. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You cannot impart what you do not possess. And you will always impart what you do possess. So you cannot impart what you don't possess. And you will impart what you do possess. This is part of what it means to be a family. You know, it's really interesting. If you were to meet my oldest son, and hang out with him for a little bit, and then ask, who's he like? He'd say he's sort of like his dad. He looks like his dad, poor kid. Uh, he, he thinks sort of like his dad. Now, he's his own different person. You know, he's, he, he holds himself differently. But the value system that is his value system on many levels mirrors my value system. Now, he's just hit 15, right? And so, now we've got, he's starting to awaken to what it means to be a young man, you know, and to build his own value system and to, to walk in truth in different ways. And, you know, uh, one thing I learned in youth ministry was that as a kid, you know, you're all just all about the story. That, that's why Sunday school, junior church, VBS, all these kinds of experiences are such a blast. You're just learning the story, more and more of the story. Just give kids the Bible. Just give them the Bible stories. When you hit junior high, I spent many, uh, several years in youth ministry. I, f- I figured out that junior hires don't necessarily want to know why you know what you know. They just want to know that you know. If you're confident in what you believe, then a young teenager can also stand confidently in that, even if their world and hormones and you know, social life are just flying around them at 100 miles an hour and they can't make sense of it. As a kid grows, they start to ask different questions, though. They start to ask why. Why do you know what you know? Why do I know what I know? You know, how, how do I walk in that? And at some point, there comes a transformation in their lives whereby their faith becomes something that isn't necessarily given to them by their spiritual authorities, but rather something that they hold for themselves. And that's going to look like a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. But on some level and in some, on, on, on some deep degree, Who I am will be imparted to those coming behind me. Who I am will be imparted to those coming behind me. So I've got an anger problem, right? I've got a pretty quick temper. I can 
I can f- figure out a situation and react to it very, very quickly. And when I react wrongly in anger, that's a problem. If you were to meet my oldest son, and if you were to push him a little bit in those same directions, you know what you'll find in him as well? A uh, pretty quick temper. Why? Why? Because he's mine. I imparted what I possess. Now, I'm hopefully also imparting an awareness of that fallenness, humility before my son, <laughs> being uh, aware of who I am, apologizing to him when I'm inappropriately angry with him, and helping him learn how not to be inappropriately and unrighteously angry in his own life. But this idea of imparting what you possess and not being able to impart what you don't possess is, 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 a, is a key principle. The concept, the idea of leaving something behind, of walking in, in inheritance, of blessing those who are coming behind us. This is a key scriptural principle that we see all down through the pages of scripture. An interesting, another interesting principle, if you look at idolatry in the Old Testament particularly, idols don't necessarily want you. Idols want your kids. Idols aren't necessarily seeking you. Idolatry is seeking the sacrifice of your children. Idolatry at its worst in the Old Testament is child sacrifice. And you can see this in many places where the children of Israel, particularly in the Chronicles and the Kings, as these things are being written about, where they actually are sacrificing their, their own kids. And it starts very, very small. Idols start promising everything. Yeah, we'll give you everything. And they end taking everything. And what they're ultimately after is a generational lineage. They're after the breaking of a generational blessing. This is from the very, very get-go of the nation of Israel. Abraham, you will be blessed. Why? To be a blessing. Why? In order to be a blessing to others, to other nations. And through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your generational heritage, blessing will come. This is a key part of the redemptive nature of the people of God, is this idea of being blessed to be a blessing and blessing to be a blessing. We don't live for ourselves. We live for those coming behind us. In Hebrews 11, you know the stories. I don't have to read these things to you. You folks are people of the book. You know Hebrews 11 as as the hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews is, is speaking about all of these different things. By the way, did you know that you're included in the hall of faith? Look at verse 3, right? Chapter, chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we... By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you're included in there as well. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the people of God live. By faith, the people of God live. And a better translation than simply by faith is by an act of faith. If you read the message, I'm pretty sure Eugene Peterson translates each one of those by faith statements by an act of faith. Because faith that is not acted on is not faith. Faith that's not activated in our lives isn't faith. It's nice thoughts. It's a theological construct. But until it's actually taken by faith and lived out in our lives, it doesn't actually have the power to become what it is meant to be. By an act of faith, Noah built the ark. By an act of faith, Abraham offered a sacrifice. By an act of faith, Abraham heard the word of the Lord. Abraham was justified by his faith, but his faith without putting Isaac on an altar was not faith. So as you look down through the 
book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, by an act of faith, 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 all of these incredible fathers and mothers of our faith who went before us and laid down a, a heritage for us stand, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, as a cloud of witnesses. But they stand as people who in and of themselves, who in and of themselves did not receive what they thought they would. It's interesting. Look at verse 13. The writer of Hebrews has just finished talking about Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared for them a city. Each of these people in Hebrews 11 died having not received. They died having not received. Did you catch that? So they never realized what it was that they were living by faith to see. They died incomplete. Look at verse 39. All these, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised did not receive what was promised. Why? Verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us. Listen closely. That apart from us, their faith should not be made complete. Each of these died having not received. Think about the people in Hebrews 11. And the way they live their lives, the boldness, the strength, the awareness, the fallenness, the brokenness, the sin, all of these things that they walked through, the way that their lives spoke to who they were and who they believed in and what it meant for them to be the people of God. And their whole lives were focused a direction. Build this, work for this, seek this, engage this, be called to this, live for this vision, live for this dream, look to see this mission actualized in your lives. And all of them worked to win that goal and all of them died having lost, having not received it. There was never a point of success for any of them where they said, yeah, we did it, we got it. Where Abraham said, that's it. I now see my children as numbered in the stars in the skies. There they all are. No, there was one, one kid. Can you imagine being Isaac and having to bless Jacob and Esau, a liar and a hateful man, and entrusting the lineage of Israel to these two? Like, what level of faith does that take? Can you imagine being Moses, the stutterer, and being called to go before Pharaoh, the king of the empire? Uh, the, the, these people, and then to have to walk with them through 40 years in the wilderness and to react wrongly one time and to not receive the promised land. You know, the, the, this, this level of guts, this level of faith, this level of courage, this is our spiritual ancestry. 
They lived not for themselves. They lived for us. Verse 39 and 40. Their faith, their faith, they died being commended for their faith, but their faith still incomplete. Why? That apart from us, it should remain incomplete, which means you complete. Listen, listen, you complete Abraham's faith. You complete the faith of Moses. You take what they only received in part and you build on it and open it up and receive it and walk in it in a way that they died having lost so that you might win. They died having not received so that you and I could receive. They died with a life and a lineage in mind that you and I might understand what it means to walk and to live by faith ourselves. This is our heritage. Not only is this our heritage, but this is also our call. This is also our call. We, the people of God, do not exist for ourselves. We do not exist for ourselves. And the concept of winning in Christ means that you lose, right? That's what Jesus says. The one who would gain the whole world must do what? Lose his own soul. The first are actually last, and the last are first. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve Jesus, seeing that all 12 men walked past the basin and the towel, but being in full authority, did what? Stood up, humbled himself, and became the lowest servant in the house. This is an upside-down kingdom where winning is losing and losing is winning. And this is our spiritual heritage. And this is what we live to exist. Parker Ford Church. Oops, that shouldn't have happened. All right. Parker Ford Church exists not for the sake of herself. Parker Ford Church exists not for the sake of accomplishing whatever winning full mission it is that we desire, but rather to leave a legacy, to leave a legacy that others might walk in. Each of us having died with our faith incomplete in order that those coming behind us might complete it. This is our heritage and this is our call. So up on the screen, we got two phrases, two phrases that maybe you recognize if you've ever done any reading about Martin Luther or the Great Reformation or any of those things. On the bottom half, you see sola fide. Let me hear you say sola fide. Sola fide means faith alone, faith alone. On the top, I just, that's actually scriptura is one word. It just fit better in my construct here. So sola scriptura. Let me hear you say sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, right? This means scriptures alone, scriptures alone. Historically speaking, the church has taken four postures. The church has adopted four postures. Number one, we've adopted a posture of retreat. And this is retreat in both senses of the word. So there's a battle over here, spiritually, culturally, whatever it might be, and we run that way. 
right? And we, we retreat in fear. The spiritual battle's here. It's too big for us. And so the church runs away from the fight. But there's also the concept of retreat, which means to pull back and be safe. And maybe you've experienced this before. You know, we've all done retreats and whatnot before. But a lot of times our churches become simply retreat centers that we invite people to. And the idea is just to build the best retreat center. We have the most fun stuff for you to do at our retreat center. We have the best programs for you at our retreat center. Our retreat center is always a nice 70 degrees. It's always warm. It's like Southern California in our retreat center year round. And if you come to our retreat center, we'll meet all your needs and we'll hire nice people to take care of you. And then you can come to our retreat center and retreat with us. We'll give you good teaching. You know, we'll take care of your kids. We'll do all of those things. Then you can go home and just come back every week. Don't forget to bring your check. It's a retreat center. This has been a posture of the church. This is a very, very readily adopted posture of the American church to retreat, to create a nice, safe environment where everybody's happy and everybody gets their needs met. Unfortunately, that's not biblical. Number two, revolution. A posture of the church is revolution. Now, this is an unfortunate posture as well. The core word in revolution is the word revolt. Revolt. The church... To say that the church is called to be revolutionary sounds very cool. It's sort of like, yeah, we're going to shake things up. We're going to make something better. But the thing is, is that the church of Jesus is never called to react. The church is never called to react. The church is called to act. The church is called to move forward. The church is not called to see what's going on and then think, how, what's the counter move in this, in this situation? Rather, we're called to take the government of God and activate it in our lives. People have to react to Jesus, not the other way around. He's the stumbling block, not not we. And so while revolution sounds cool, we're not a reactive church. We're called to be an active church. We're called to move things forward. Furthermore, revolutionaries are generally very, very cynical. Very, very critical. We don't need any more of that in the church. Those are reactions. Those are reactions. Number three, revival. A posture of revival where we live for a move of the spirit where, and, and we do everything that we can to try and make that happen. And so this posture of living for revival is, is a way that we structure ourselves. It's how we think. It's how we pray. We're, we're living for revival. Lord, revive your people again and, and we structure all of that around that. The posture of revival, the problem with that is you can no sooner make revival happen than you can jump over the moon. You, you can't posture yourself well enough to activate revival. You can't pray hard enough to activate revival. You can't make God do anything. God will visit his spirit upon you when he desires to. Now, it's true that revival and prayer movements tend to go hand in hand. As we seek our face, turn from our wicked ways, then he uh, comes and brings an awakening within his people. But the Holy Spirit brings revival when the Holy Spirit desires to bring revival. And he brings revival based upon things that are oftentimes well outside of the constructs that we're currently living in. Revival is oftentimes seen better in hindsight than it is in the present. Like, oh, did you see what God was doing? That's amazing. We are completely different than we were before. We are awakened But a posture of revival just becomes generally a hype machine. 
where we're just, we're doing everything that we can oftentimes to emotionally manipulate God to show up in a certain way, in a certain venue, in a certain construct, in a certain conception. And much of a consumeristic worldview plays into this, plays into this heart because we write books about it and we build a worship industry around it that, that keeps us feeling like we're pushing for something when in actuality it's pretty humanistic and pretty self-centered. Lastly is Reformation. Reformation, a posture of the church. Uh, Reformation is something that God uh, calls people to. Right? God calls people to. You can see the word form in Reformation. Reformation is a reformation. It's a reformation. Now, we want revival. We desire to see revival, but the Holy Spirit brings revival whenever it is that he desires to. We pray for it, we seek it, we steward it when he brings it. But a a move of God is completely supernaturally based, awakening his people, calling them back to himself in all kinds of different creative ways that we can see down through history. Reformations are different. Reformation is a reforming. Whereas revivals are based around a move of the spirit, reformations are built around doctrine. Reformations are built around a theology, particularly a singular point of theology, a singular point of doctrine. Sola fide and sola scriptura were two points of doctrine that birthed the Great Reformation. Names like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, Peter Bucher, Philip Melanchthon, John, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, I had one more that in my head, and I'm blanking out on now because I already said John Knox. Yeah, Charles, that, that would have been the first great awakening, so that would have been a little bit later. Um, the point is, is that these great reformers, these great men and women of the faith, they were doctrinally based. There was something wrong with the concept of salvation in the Catholic Church in the 1500s that was calling people to misunderstand the word of God. People were being kept in ignorance. They weren't allowed to read the Bible in their own language. Right, the mass was all in Latin. Nobody could understand a thing anybody said. Something had to change because salvation was being compromised. So Martin Luther steps on the scene. Sola fide, faith alone. Well, under what authority do you say sola fide? Number two, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. The Great Reformation was something that changed the face and the manifestation of the church in the world. And it did so through these two principles. The Great Reformation in the 1500s, we know as started by Martin Luther. It sought to answer four questions. Number one, how is a person saved? And the answer, sola fide, by faith alone. A person is not saved through the sacraments. A person is not saved through buying indulgences. A person is not saved through worshiping a man. A, the, the church is, a person is not saved by anything that they themselves can do. A person is saved by faith alone. Sola fide. Number two, where does spiritual authority lie? You got to realize this is in the days when the, when the, uh, the, the papal, the state of the papal office the state of the popes in the Middle Ages, 1300 to 1500, was as corrupt and uh, disgusting as you can possibly imagine. And one after the other, Pope came, rose to the surface. In the 1400s, there was this thing called the Papal Schism, where two different popes were existing at the same time, both actively excommunicating the other every other week. 
and uh, declaring that, you know, they, that person's going to hell. No, you're going to hell. No, you and all your people are going this and that and the other. Where does spiritual authority lie? If the church is this corrupt, if the leadership is this corrupt, if things are this bad and this kind of, where, where does, how do we derive what spiritual leadership should be? How do we understand where spiritual authority and power come from? Well, the scriptures tell us that. The problem was is that literacy was at like 90, illiteracy was at like 90%. People couldn't read the Bible on their own. They couldn't hear the Bible in their own language. So when Martin Luther started to translate the Bible into German in 1522, I mean, people began to hear this and it awakened them to the fact that the Bible became the guiding principle for spiritual authority. This was brand new. This was brand new. The two tools of the institutional church in the, in the Middle Ages to keep people trapped and enslaved was fear and ignorance. Fear of hell, fear of purgatory, fear of excommunication. Sola fide destroyed fear. Ignorance, keep people not knowledgeable about what the truth is. The Bible, scriptural beautiful spiritual authority. Martin Luther championed both of these things. Martin Luther saw these excesses and these untruths in the church and chose to rise up and to reform around this concept, these concepts of doctrine, these concepts of belief. Martin Luther was born humble man, Son of a miner, but it turned out pretty quickly that he had a quick mind and a sharp spirit. And so he went to study and became a monk. And uh, Martin Luther said, if ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All right? He was a monk of all monks. There was no one who could, who could beat himself into submission like Martin Luther. He was brutal to himself. And he felt like God was always waiting to judge him. So he needed to stay as pure and as perfect as possible. And he would fast and he would pray and he would be out in the elements and he would wear horrific clothing and he would make himself look like a fool. And he would beat himself with a cat of nine tails. And Martin Luther was as devoted to this cause of self-righteousness as you can ever be. But he also, though, loved to learn and he loved the Bible. And as he read the Bible... And then saw what it was that his works were trying to get for him, as opposed to what God was showing him in the pages of Scripture. The disconnect became very clear in his mind. And one day he was reading the book of Romans, chapter 1, and he saw verses 16 and 17. For the, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it it is written, what? The just shall live. How? By faith. Sola fide. And sola fide become a personally awakened thing in Luther's mind and heart. And he looked around at himself. He said, I I don't need to do these things. I don't need to be about these things because it is by faith that I'm approved to God. And it's, it's, it's by faith, by grace, by the love of Jesus that I'm ushered into the kingdom, that I become something. I become a son of God and I can walk in that. And he looked around at the institutional church around him and he's just, what have I been doing? And he begins to teach the Bible differently. Between 1511 and 1516, Martin Luther taught the books of Psalms. He taught Romans and he taught Galatians. And then he taught the book of Hebrews. 
And when he read the book of Hebrews and saw the priesthood of every believer instead of a professional priesthood that required these mediators between God and humans, things just came together for him. And he wanted to have a discussion about it. Martin Luther never sought to start the Great Reformation. Martin Luther never desired to to start the Protestant church. In his mind, the Catholic church was just simply wrong. And they didn't know they were wrong. So he began to write some stuff down that he saw wrong with the Roman Catholic church that he wanted to have a discussion about. Turns out, though, he had a lot of opinions about what was wrong with the Roman Catholic church because he actually finished up at number 95. And he took these 95 points, these 95 issues that he had, what we know as the 95 theses, and he took them to the grocery store bulletin board, which is what a church door was in the early 1500s. You know, you can go to your grocery. This is something my parents told me. They used to actually like use this thing. We don't use it anymore. Now we use Craigslist and that kind of stuff. But, but you could actually use a grocery store bulletin board to publicize stuff. You know, like this concert or this event or this, that, and the other. So maybe some of you have done this before. But apparently they're still there. I looked in Giant the other day, and sure enough, there was one. I said, what can I put on this? They said, anything you want, as long as it's within the, you know, as long as it's tasteful. <laughs> I think that's the word that she used. All right. So I could publicize anything I want. Yeah. Well, what if I just publicized like some thoughts that I had about the way that, um, you know, business could run better? That's fine. I can just ask people to take one. Sure. No problem. The door of the church at Wittenberg Chapel was that for the city of Wittenberg. So he took his 95 theses, boom, 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 knocked them up on there to the, uh, the door of the church, simply saying, I'd like to have a discourse about this. You could put something up there on the door of the church if you wanted to as well that you wanted to talk about. Well, the problem was is that it turned the whole church on its ear. October 31st, 1517, what was the day of 95, the 95 theses? And the church has never been the same since. Martin Luther at that point in time, became what we know of as Martin Luther. And he began to preach sola fide and sola scriptura, and people came to Christ. And it just, I mean, people were enlivened by the word of God as he spoke it to them in German, as they could hear in their own language. And and, and their, their lives were just set on fire, and they began to push back against the institutional church. And in 1521, Martin Luther was called before the Diet of Worms, which we called the Diet of Worms, but it's German, so it's Worms, not Worms. And uh, a diet is just simply a gathering. It's a gathering of the ecclesiastical and, and organizational leaders. Come and defend yourself. Did you write this stuff? Yes, I wrote this stuff. Will you recant it? And Martin Luther says, I cannot recant. It is neither good for my conscience nor for you for me to recant what I strongly believe in. Here I stand, so help me God. He then gets whisked off into hiding and he keeps writing and the Great Reformation spreads like wildfire all across Germany and it goes into Switzerland and then it goes into France and it goes up into the northern Germanic nations and then it crosses the channel into England where God uses the most unrighteous leader maybe of all time, Henry VIII and his affair with Anne Boleyn to usher in the Protestant Reformation in England. Uh, Amazing stuff, amazing stuff, which is why (laughs) when God says that he laughs at the plans of kings, we can laugh with him when he does that kind of stuff with those kinds of leaders. You know, it's it's such a fear-based posture. The problem is, is that as the church works itself out and as the Protestant Reformation continues to spread like wildfire, it starts to disintegrate some. 
because they're still marrying state and church and sort of how do politics work in this? How do they not work in it? You baptize three times forward. We baptize one time backward. You know, we're, we believe in the Eucharist in this way. You believe in the Eucharist in this way. And boom, 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 fraction, 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 division, schism here, there, all over the place. So pretty soon, sola fide and sola scriptura, while they were initially very unifying principles, they can't hold things together because question number three, what is the church? Is a question that still needs to be answered. So back to this idea. Back to this idea of not living for ourselves. Of being aware of who we are. And that those that went before us died with their faith being incomplete in order that we might perfect it, in order that we might complete it for them by our faith. In 1374, a man named John Wycliffe, he was an Englishman. He was also born in a humble place, but again, his parents saw that he quickly picked up literacy and he enjoyed books. So he went to study at Oxford. And while he studied at Oxford, he studied religion, He studied the priesthood. And John Wycliffe began to read the scriptures. He was reading the Latin Vulgate at that point in time and the Latin Bible. He was reading the writings of Jerome. He was reading the readings of Tertullian. He was reading these writings and he was seeing that something was off. Wycliffe was a prolific writer and he would write and write and write. This is 1374, remember? And he was a professor at Oxford as he started publishing these pamphlets and publishing these handbooks, saying things like the Bible should be the standard for practice and faith, not the traditions of the church. He started saying things like the blood of Jesus is all that you need to have a personal relationship with God. He started writing things like, you know, the book of Hebrews says that every believer is a priest and that a priest does not need to hear confession. You could actually confess to God on your own based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And Wycliffe begins writing all of these things down. The Roman Catholic Church gets their hands on it, and they freak out. He has five edicts of excommunication published against him. (laughs) And the Pope sends soldiers to England to capture him and to burn him at the stake. But his friends take him, and they put him into hiding. And he stays in hiding. And the, the Roman Catholic Church, they work against John Wycliffe with everything that they have. And they turn people against him, and they try and get to his friends, and they try and get to his family. But Wycliffe stays secure, and he's writing, and he's writing, and he's writing, and he's doing it all in secrecy. He's doing it all in hiding. He can no longer have a strong public ministry anymore because if he comes out of hiding, they're going to burn him at the stake. He dies seeing nothing that he hoped for. But his writings made their way across Europe to another priest in the Czech Republic, a guy by the name of John Huss. Huss received some of Wycliffe's pamphlets and began to read them. And Huss oversaw one of the larger uh, parishes in Prague, 3,000 people. And he read these pamphlets and came to true faith in Christ and began to preach these things. And people began to flock to his teachings, particularly, particularly university students. And they were hearing the word of God for themselves. And they were coming to faith in Christ. And they were saying, this is amazing. We can build a church around this. But we have to pray. And the Hussites, the followers became known, the Hussites began to pray and pray and pray. The Hussites became the Unitas Fratrum, 
the United Brotherhood, which we now know of as the Moravian Church, which holds two things at its core, prayer and missions. Prayer and missions to this very day. And from 1400 all the way through the end of the century, the Moravians are praying and praying and praying. And in 1415, the Catholic Church has enough of John Huss and all of his troublemaking, and they promise him safe passage to another diet, just like Luther was a part of. But when he gets there, they betray their word that they would keep him safe. They simply take him. They arrest him. They say, will you recant? He says no, and they march him to the middle of Prague Square and burn him at the stake as he recites the Psalms, just, just like that. And John Huss died having never seen what it is that he hoped to see. John Huss died knowing that his followers would face the same fate that he was walking to and through as the flames consumed him. So here's Wycliffe writing and writing and writing and writing and then dies. Hurt, bitter, angry on many levels, having not received what he believed God called him to. And here's John Huss praying and praying and preaching and calling to people and dying, having not received what it was that God called him to walk in. These men believed something. They walked for, they stood for something for truth and they died not receiving it. But then suddenly out of nowhere, this young Catholic monk steps onto the scene in 1570 with 95 theses and turns the church upside down. Martin Luther did not just appear. Martin Luther didn't just happen. Wycliffe wrote Luther into existence. Huss prayed Luther into existence. Those men died having lost in order that Martin Luther might win. And he did to an extent because Martin Luther died having not seen what it is that he desired to see, which was a reformation in the church that actually made the church one. When Luther died, he died... uh, in the midst of all kinds of things that we now call denominations, cursing them to his very grave, saying, this is not Jesus' way. This is not Jesus' way. For the church to be fractured and splintered along these lines, this is not the way of God. The third question still remains, what is the church? What is the church? And I believe God desires to answer that question. And I believe God is calling his people to reform who we are as the church in America, particularly, is very much up for grabs and is open to engage with depth and truth and reality and life. So if the church needs to be reformed, then that means that there needs to be people who are willing to lose in order that those coming behind us can win. There is a great theme in the church today, and it's this. We're winners. We can do it. We can do it. Right? We've, we've figured it out. We can make this happen. Right? We can have our churches. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can be divided denom- denominationally, and we can engage in these other ways too, right? We can be over here in our sectarian ways. You can be over there in your sectarian ways. We can have white churches. We can have black churches. 
Right, you can have, we can all be homogenous in our historical and uh, religious heritages. We can all do these things and walk in these things. And everybody's happy being in all, the, all of those places. But this question of what is the church needs to be answered, particularly in America. Because who we are is not who we were. We are not a culturally respected, influential organization anymore. And there needs to be a return to the foundations of what sola fide and sola scriptura has given us as the basis for moving forward in our identity as the people of God, as the body of Christ. But that will require someone to be the John Wycliffe's and someone to be the John Husses. Everybody wants to be Martin Luther. But someone has to lose in order that others might win. Are we willing to be that kind of a church now? Who for the sake of those coming behind us, we work and we toil and we build foundations now that our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids can build on in the future. And that we die having not received and having not seen what it is that we deeply desire to see, but working for it and building for it in order that they might actually walk in the fullness of it. That's the kind of church that God is looking for. That's our spirit. That's Hebrews 11. These all died having not received. And the church right now is saying, we want to receive, we want to receive, we want to receive. And we find shallow ways to receive. And we find shallow successes of story, or stories of success. And we find shallow ways to think about who we are. When God is calling us to something much, much deeper. That's, and that's not to reference ourselves. That's not to use ourselves as the standard. But rather to use his call in this season as the standard. Who are we? Who are we? And what does it mean for us to be reformed as a true people of God? Who walk in his truth. To see his church marching forward, engaging forcefully advancing the kingdom the way that God has called us to. I don't know the answer to any of those questions, but I do know this, is that if we will ever see that, it will be because there are generations who are willing to lose so that others can win. It will be so that because there are churches who are willing to say, we are not going to exist for ourselves. We're going to exist for the success and the win of the generations coming behind us. We will lose now so that they can experience. We will die with faith that is not fully realized in order that they might complete it. Because this is who we are. We are the generationally, historically connected body of Christ. And we stand on the work of those who have gone before us. What kind of work are we leaving for those who will come behind us? The writer of Hebrews leaves us with this thought. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the New Testament. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
God, make us this kind of people with this kind of guts, this kind of heart. To see the generations behind us for who they are as people who impart courage, faith, life, goodness, love, grace. And God, we can't impart what we don't possess. So would you make us people of those things? People with an eye and that is that is looking to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that it is our call to build for the success of those coming behind us, to work not for ourselves and not for our immediacy, for our small definitions of success, but for your grand and great definition, for a world that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus. God, expand our minds. Open our hearts. Give us your perspective to see this world and your church the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen.